station, but we're here for a real education. Welcome to A Real Education. I'm your host, Tim Wick. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, movie monolith, Melissa Kersher. Hello! And a host of others. So, this is an unusual episode. We aren't going to do our traditional intro. We just, uh, we're just doing the whole thing. Because I got to the movie late. It's well, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a long story. So, and yeah. we have a whole bunch of people. Originally, <laughs> just like the movie, just it's like, a long yes. story. It's Originally, long it was story. just going to be Ellie Ellingsburg. That's all I knew. But boom, I show up because I didn't actually see the movie this time. <laughs> I've, I've seen this movie plenty. But anyway, <laughs> so it was a theatrical presentation. I should get to the movie before I explain yes. all of this. All right, so it's yes, a theatrical, yeah. theatrical 70 millimeter, right? We were we yeah, were a 70 millimeter presentation of 2001 A Space Odyssey mm-hmm. at the Heights Theater in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So we have Melissa, who is our, our podcast co-host. Mm-hmm. We have Allie. They were there, and they brought along Scott Kiever. Say hi, Scott. Hi, Scott. <laughs> and Richard Brantley. Hello, world. Hello. So now what I need to understand, because literally we they, they like showed up and we started recording. So I quite frankly don't know what the fuck's going on. But that's all right. <laughs> okay, neither do we. That's all right. Yeah. So We just uh, watched 2001. We you did just watch it. Now, how many people here had seen 2001 before? Uh, I had seen it when I was very, very young on either on broadcast television or my dad's Betamax um, and had no recollection of it, as it turns out, mm-hmm. beyond Daisy. That's all I retained from that film was Daisy and the waltz. I retained the waltz. Oh, that yeah. was it. Because that waltz will not leave your head. No, it right. will not. Ever. Right. No. Ever. And I have seen it before, and it's actually it's like some of the music stuff and the visuals have influenced me, but I've never seen a 70 millimeter uh, print of this, and it's I've got things to say about it. Yeah, it's a awesome. whole different experience yeah, seeing, uh-huh. seeing it in so. a theater in '70. I, I have to I, I have to concur with that. I've I've seen that film. I, I've seen 35 millimeter prints in a theater. I've seen it on television. I've seen it on uh, laserdisc, and there is no substitute for seeing it in a dark room that is surrounding you. Um, It not only changes the appearance of the film, it does really change the experience of it much more than I was expecting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I mean, I will, I will say I was a fan. I'm a fan of Stanley Kubrick. I Mm -hmm. enjoy his films. I liked 2001 before I saw it in 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. I loved 2001 once I saw it in, in 70 millimeter. Yeah, because, and, and you and I saw it at the same showing 14 years ago. Yeah, and we both print. looked at it. We looked yeah. at each other and we're like, that was a different movie than I've ever seen before. Completely it is It is a transformative experience, I think, to see 2001 yeah. in 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. It, it, it yeah. completely makes you go, oh, I get it why this is an important film now, mm-hmm. where you didn't before. Well, I got how important it was before, but, you know, they always talk about Kubrick as being very cold and very distant, mm-hmm. and and that's true of a lot of the set pieces, but what I got out of the print, out of the 70 millimeter print, is how much emotion was coming through that came through from the actors. Like, yes, absolutely. Just their distress. I mean, you know, I've heard critiques, I've heard analogies, or um, uh, critiques done um of like how the humans act more like robots than the robot does in 2001 and how that was like a thing that Kubrick did on purpose. But you know what I got from this print was no, they're not, they're not, there's a, a huge amount of emotion there that's happening, especially towards the end. Well, I think it depends yeah. on, on which character you're talking about. Yeah. The, the middle of the film, which takes place on the space station and on the Tycho base. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, these are just the most banal people you can imagine. They Mm -hmm. are dull. They are uninteresting. Mm -hmm. uh, And it really isn't about them. The, the flip side is I I do think Kira delays performance in the movie is very underrated. Mm -hmm. That would have been a very easy role to overact badly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he did it with a great deal of restraint. He, to your point, he he expressed a lot with very little motion. And that's kind of what the characters, I mean, that's what would happen in in a professional setting. I mean, that's like Kubrick's uh, uh, attention to details, not just in how 
you know, the machinations of spaceships and, you know, how the, how Jupiter is supposed to look at what angle of the sun it's hitting. It's basically, it's also like what the emotion would be for that, for a real live astronaut. I mean, mm-hmm. we're so used to now to Sandra Bullock and like the sort of, you know, this big emotional mm-hmm. thing that happens into the camera. Whereas here it's very, you know, it's, 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 it's held back, but it's still there. So by the point he's like, He's gone through the, the, the star his Stargate and he's there and he's shivering. And in the 70 millimeter, you feel it. It's a visceral yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he's just like, he's been through way too much more than any human has, has before. And you, again, it's that print. It really is a new, a new experience for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and when you're trapped with the film in a theater and when it's blown up to 70 millimeter, well, not blown up because it was shot in 70, but it's, um, like Richard said, it's easy to overact because, you know, a twitch of the eyebrow is carries a lot when you're that close to the image. Whereas once you move that performance to a TV screen or something smaller, it doesn't work. And you pan and scan it. And I think from almost the first shot of the film, mm-hmm. uh, like the first shot of the, the prehistoric sequence, mm-hmm. Which, if you're watching it on TV and you're thinking that the first time most of us saw it was probably pan and scan. Mm-hmm. Um, and think about that, the way it, it differs when you're watching it in 70 millimeters. And what happens is you've got that group of of Neanderthals or, or Cro-Magnons yeah. or whatever they are. But primates. The, yeah, the primates gathered in this tiny little group with so much on either side of them, mm-hmm. as opposed to when it's pan and scan and all of the edges are cut off. Mm-hmm. And and so much of this film is about isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that first shot of those, those primitive beings is supposed to give you that immediately that sense of isolation which is what the monoliths are there to essentially bridge it's their job to bring the species that are that are that are separated by space together mm-hmm. so that's what that that to me is why that opening shot it's like if you look at it on a television screen if you want that that was the first time you saw that movie i don't even know how you can understand what it's going for or, or um, even the the one scene where um, dave is going out to retrieve the body of yellow astronaut guy um frank frank it's frank, frank dave frank. and frank god that's right that's Jeez, oh. melissa so much yellow for being dude, so dude. much for being the movie but, model. He got, he, but he got his own novel in the end, so it's okay <laughs> yeah it's true it's true but anyway you know that that really long shot out the portal the front portal of the the little away ship the body is just a dot in the center of the screen and that shot is held for a long time and it makes sense in the theater you have no clue what's going on in, you know, just mm-hmm. seeing it on a regular old TV screen. Yeah. So, dear listeners, if you take anything away from this, see it on a screen as big as possible. Yeah, I, I, what I would what, yeah. I, what I would say is, if you have seen two thousand one and you don't like it, mm-hmm. but you haven't seen it in seventy millimeter, yeah, like, yeah, see it. I don't care how much you don't like it. In order to really understand what what Kubrick was going for in this film, you have to see it in seventy millimeter. Yeah. Well, and not to, to get too technical about it, but this is the the first proper seventy millimeter screening of anything that I have seen, and this comes after the uh, after the theater chains have all completed their digital transitions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I actually like digital for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of benefits to it. Um, but what really impressed to be watching this film and knowing that all of the, there are no opticals in the film, all of the compositing was done in the camera. And that really helps because you're, you're watching at most still a third generation, Mm -hmm. but not just that the image was very, very sharp and Mm -hmm. the, the grain was very fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, the colors were very vibrant and the image was just rock steady for the most part. Yeah. Then you got to like the, the edges of the reel where the sprockets are a little worn. There was yeah, a little and, bit of registration, but that's yeah, and you know a few scratches on the on the ends of the reels. But um, yeah, this is a newer print. It, you know, continuing a conversation that Richard and I had at intermission because um, I was thinking, you know, if this was an original run print, it'd be pink 
by now. By now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not pink. So this print was probably struck in the 1990s, I would imagine. Yeah. It might but be the, the print that you and I saw 14 years yeah. ago. I'm pretty sure it's the same print. Yeah. But, but the quality of the thing compares very, very well to a properly calibrated 4K mm-hmm. projection. And if yeah. you like the film aesthetic, it's better than that. Yeah, right? it's, it's a gorgeous print. Well, I'm all for digital, but I think, you know, when a film is shot on film, if you can see it on film... Uh, it makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Especially is. if it's 70, because there's nothing yeah. quite like Well, it's 70 for sure. I do think it depends on the, you know, there's so many things that go into that. The projectionist at the Heights clearly knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And finding people that have that kind of experience is getting extremely difficult. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, and a... a mediocre digital projection system will fail next to a well-calibrated film any day of the week. So again, it, it depends and it depends how much monkeying mm-hmm. uh, happened in the digital transfer. Right. You um, haven't seen the film for a while. Yeah. Right? Yes. I was going to say, we, time. We, yes, we, we should so, go back to Ellie and have her give the, the, the new fight. The so, closest to uh, virginal. Yeah, I yeah. W- yes. I was, I was in a single digit age the last time I saw this film. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to say you were five. That's probably pretty accurate, actually. Betamax. Yeah. Betamax was around. Yeah, so yeah. probably like five, because I have I have a memory of it, so that's probably a pretty good estimate. Um, my father saw this in the theater, so I dragged him along with me because he saw it, not first run, because he lived in a small town, so second run, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, had seen it in the theater, and this was my birthday gift to him, so he's been waiting since March <laughs> to actually get his birthday gift. Tonight. Yeah, tonight, yes. Tonight, yeah. yeah, so tonight was the birthday gift. I'm like, okay, we're going to go see this in 70 mil. It's going to be great. And uh, I understand now why he needed to have it on Betamax because my mother, whenever she talks about this, talks about how much damn money she had to spend on this stupid Betamax that was his anniversary <laughs> gift. <laughs> but he was so happy it was worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I get that. I get why it was worth it. But uh, this film as I was thinking about what, what witty thing am I going to say about this film? Because there was so much to say. Um, (laughs) The first thing came to my mind was this is the most stunningly gorgeous music video I've seen since MTV stopped showing music videos. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because it really is. It is. It is. Freaking amazing. It's like an advertisement for classical music. It really, really is. Just, just made me very happy. It's like, yeah, I could just I could sit here with this on in the background and like while I'm trying to work and just watch the pretty imagery. So like it's very serene and calming. Mm-hmm. You can still buy the album. Yes. Oh, that's oh, happening. Yes. That is. Oh, yes. uh, if, the only reason I didn't buy it on the way home was because I had to operate the motor vehicle. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate your respect. Yes. Yes. I'm like, oh, okay. I'll wait until I get done with the podcasting. Whatever. Um, but it's just fantastic. I one thing that struck me was as we're watching the, um, the, the, the rocket dock with the space station and the first portion of the film with actual people in it, um, Mm. very much like, Oh, it is a dance that they're doing to, they, when they sync up, I was like, I had chills. That's really, I don't know. I I feel a little weird to be like, and then it sunk up and the models were spinning at the same rate. It was great. But you don't have to be high to watch this movie. No, No, you really don't. But I can't imagine what it would be like if you were. Yeah, God, it's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I bet it it is. is But uh, watching it and just, and and then getting to to that last act, Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite, and I was just like, Oh my God, how much acid do you have to drop to make any of this make sense? But I feel like I have dropped acid, so maybe that wouldn't help. But uh, no, there's, the, the, there's, the character studies in this yeah. are actually amazing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, at first I was just like, okay, I don't know what's going on with any of these people, but getting the little snippets just here and there of the, the doctors concerned about there's an epidemic, what's happening and, mm-hmm. you know, finding out, nope, there really is no epidemic. Cause not remembering anything of this plot. I'm like, huh, is there an epidemic? I don't, it, hmm. that makes sense. <laughs> well, it, it, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, this film was in pre-production for like four years. And part of it was, um, after making, um, 
Doctor Strangelove? It was Doctor immediately after making Doctor Strangelove, Kubrick said got interested in like the possibility of extraterrestrial life, and so he asked around and got put in touch with Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction writer, and they developed this script alongside a novel adaptation of the same story, and it was the two of them working together to. In tandem, making a very, very grounded science fiction kind of epic. And you know, you, that was the you want relationship yeah. of man to the universe sort of thing. And if you want an explanation and, of the whole Stargate, you read the novel. Yeah. yeah. The novel gives you answers to what, what happens. Because there is a last communication that happens from from the astronaut before he goes through the Stargate, which yeah. is... Oh my hell! Oh my god! It's, it's, it's full, full of stars, stars which yeah. is not actually in the movie. It's not no, because right? my, my dad was telling me he's like, okay, I know I was starting to doze at the end, but he doesn't say it, right? He never he says, does not "My say God, it. it's full of stars." He says it in the sequel. Yes, so that's that's from nineteen eighty. Five? Was that when the movie no, was? No, uh, I want to say it was like 87, 88. Yeah, it was in yeah, that area. Yeah. And, it, and that was actually very close to the novel, interestingly enough. Yeah. yeah. But the novel itself departs from yeah. its predecessor yeah. in a number of ways, and all of the sequels do. Yeah, right? 2010 is much more concrete in its storytelling. Yeah, it's not as, yeah. not as interesting. Well, as and this. the novel is too. 2010, oh, by the way, is uh, 1984. Okay. okay. Was it? Yeah. Good God. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought, oh my God. But then if you follow it to 2061 and 3001, it's the yeah. same thing. And yeah. it really takes the mystery yeah. out of the whole thing. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean I, and that was Arthur C. Clarke, you know, kind of surging along with his own storyline. It, it whereas, whereas a lot of what we're, what we're getting here is Kubrick, you know, once that script was developed, taking away dialogue and taking away more dialogue and yeah. make it more and more and more visual to the point where you're only getting just hints of a larger story and that's it. And what was your take on how? Yeah. What was your take on, on- I loved, I, I did not remember just how much emotion Hal really has. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remembered being very impacted by Hal. Like there, like I said, there were like, Two things I remembered about the film, uh, the waltz, Daisy. I also remembered, open the pod bay door, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. Like, I remembered those things. Like, those are the only things I took away from 2001 as a child. And, you know, spout them like, yeah, this is pop culture, I understand. I'm I'm an adult. Um, (laughs) But uh, just, Hal is such a wonderfully complex character in this film. Mm -hmm. And just realized the... I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm just like, oh God, you're killing me. You're a machine and you've just killed everybody and I feel bad for you. (laughs) Stop it, you asshole. (laughs) I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. (laughs) My mind is going. Oh no, I'm so sorry. You have to go through this. Because Cooper gets slammed a lot for having... He's not a character director. No, he's not. He's not really deep. And no. in a way, that makes him a perfect match with Clark. Yeah. Because he can't write character either. Right. Yeah. He, he writes ideas and he writes plot, but I'm mm-hmm. sorry, having gone through all the 2001 books, you just don't give a crap about any of the people. No. no. Because they're, they're, they're not interesting. Yeah. But they're only there to be, display the science. Be, yeah. Beyond caring about humans in general, you don't feel yeah. like, you're not yeah. like, oh, he has a family back home. I'm so concerned. Like, you, you don't get any of that. But that's one of the interesting things in the movie, and I was mentioning this during uh, uh, during intermission. the intermission, is the, the the middle sequence is so banal, and most of the conversations that Floyd is having with other people mm-hmm. are just really kind of dull, mm-hmm. foundational, but they're but dull, right? Yeah. And I mean, look what he does during the, he takes a Pan Am. Spaceship <laughs> to a Hilton space station <laughs> with with a hojo oh, and uses a hojo. A, <laughs> yeah. yep and makes an AT and T video phone call yes. and gets his kid in Mob with, Bell wasn't it to yeah, whom, yeah 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 to whom he says nothing of any import whatsoever <laughs> so you know in one sense it was certainly a, a reasonable prognostication of what's going to happen but it was curious to see yeah I just enjoyed how realistic that. Was. I really enjoyed that entire sequence. I really did. I was like, you know what? Five years ago, I would have went, this is the most boring shit. I'm out of here. But it just really drew me in. Mm-hmm. I was like, 
Nothing is happening, but I really care about the fact that nothing is happening. Williams but look at the background. I mean, a look lot is setting. happening. Yes, where, yes. Yeah. I was really it. focused on, on the details, and the that was really too. great. I think that's partially yes. the print, that oh, yeah. all of a sudden that detail pops up. And it's also, it's a critique based on, you just watched our ancestors, you know, our you know, primitive ancestors doing this thing over here. Mm-hmm. Now they're over here, and it's almost like a critique, you know, of like a mm-hmm. forward-looking critique of, oh, well... So have we evolved or have we de- So it's not all progress. No, yeah. 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 Is this yeah. really progress that we've well, you know? love the fact yeah. that the very first tool the ape invents is a weapon. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Absolutely. And now we're on a space station. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and I love that. I also love that sequence for the things that are dated because it's yeah. not the things you expect and it's not usually the things that other sci-fi films kind of get wrong when they date horribly it with this it's the it's like they got the science right it the things and they got like the corporatization of space they've got um you know like video calling and you know the concept of calling and the graphs actually the yeah, graphs and, and a lot yeah. of a lot of like the algorithms that happen on the, yeah. the other screens yeah which does happen it's yeah just, like, the graphics are just yeah and the the different. lack of horizon line and all that stuff mm-hmm. the thing to get wrong is like the corporate logos yeah <laughs> and you know just these these little in but if you were living yeah. in the 60s hell pan am owned the world well absolutely, yeah. absolutely. they might as well general mills is still around i yep, uh, yep. at the spaceship galley yep. whirlpool yeah totally totally mm-hmm. you would never see that logo on your tv set because it was right. so small right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah but but you know going back to the the detail in the print and the fun of looking around and seeing all the stuff I mean, Kubrick was an intensely detail-oriented director. Obsessively so, so. Yes. I mean, and he was involved in like every aspect of building this entire world. Um, but he was working with designers who did everything. They're right down to the typefaces that they put on the buttons. Everything is just meticulously detailed. On the sides of the slippers. It's yeah. Like grip shoes. The, the grip, grip shoes. shoes. Like, yeah. Next to the Panam logo. Yes. 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 Because, yes. of course, they had to... And I, I, I know someone somewhere has <laughs> reproduced. I want, I want the list of instructions for the for the zero, zero gravity, gravity toilet. toilet. That was hilarious. <laughs> read that, and it's like I'm in a hurry, man. Skip to the end. Somebody wrote that up. I want to. There's, read there's it. actually that's not a jumble of words. There's actually somebody's. Yeah, yeah. somebody. I want it. that as a sign I can post on my actual bathroom. Yes, just to mess with people. Yes, you know that probably exists. I'm sure it does, and I'm gonna find we, it on we Etsy live in, or something. We live in an age of the internet. I know. And, I know. There is a website out there that. That painstakingly details what's written down on every button and every screen in 2001. So somebody somewhere did a free screen and copied it. You know? Somebody wow. did it. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if they have the full back. That's what digital it. is all about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. What I, what I, I was – in the, in the close-up shots of uh, Frank and Dave – I was think, sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I can see every pore on their face. Yeah. This is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> Celebrity stubble. Yes. <laughs> oh, and speaking of camera work, I think that was the thing that was so startling to me. Was number one, that the mechaniz- mechanization they, they went through to figure out sort of zero gravity as, as oh, yeah. going through the rotating – uh, well, s- cylindrical. Oh my God, he found it. Oh my God, the list exists. <laughs> not only, not only does it exist. No, I, you don't need me to send this. I typed in two thousand one Z, and it auto filled. <laughs> <laughs> Zero gravity toilet. Right Zero on your phone. Toilet. There, there are there are oh. multiple images. If you look here, all the images. I there love the internet. Wow. Thank so you. Hard. just explaining to the yes. internet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you would, notes, if you would like to know how to operate operate the zero gravity toilet it in 2001 okay. Okay. it is easy to discover such information <laughs> does it mention three seashells uh, it did not mention i will i did it's, it's a lot of words i didn't have to <laughs> that. as far as i know there was nothing about the seashells damn it um, damn it anyways forever a mystery <laughs> so the camera work in that in that sequence where uh the guy's jogging is jogging mm-hmm. along those yeah. along that corridor but he's like going upside down over they're dolly shots yeah. It's a dolly yeah. shot either yeah. following him or or going in front of him. And I'm I'm thinking, not only did they have to figure out how to get that 
that whole um, yeah they they that, have, have to get that all rotated. They have to figure out how to move a camera along at the same pace as he's jogging, like either following him or like going in front of him. And I'm like, well, yeah, it, so it, much detail. It was a giant gimbal set that they yes. could rotate, and it had multiple points where you could anchor the camera both both within the set, so it was anchored to the set itself, or mm -hmm. outside of it, so it could catch the. Uh, you know, just horizonless motion. It, it was amazing. Yeah. And then, well, they had the same thing yeah. with there was the uh, stewardess mm -hmm. on the flight mm -hmm. to the moon yeah. who basically does a 180 and walks off the ceiling. Yes. Yeah. And that one I think was more successful than the Gimbo Inside Discovery because yeah. the, the you could t tell this was an age before Steadicam, the, the yeah. camera movement was rough. Yeah. yeah. But for that scene, where the woman was was walking that 180, and she's actually you know while the sets walking in place while the sets turning around, right. mm -hmm. but just getting the timing of that down so that it doesn't give away the gag, yeah, mm -hmm. is yeah. impressive. I wonder how many times she had to walk in one place. Well, see, okay, well not, knowing Kubrick, about seventy five. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably about right. So in the in the jogging scene, I'm just wondering if he had to use dress tape so we couldn't see up his shorts. Right. Because I'm just like, where is it? There, where's the slip? There's no slip, really. I'm just impressed now. <laughs> great, great film work, guys. <laughs> I'm so, looking for the dress tape. All right. <laughs> well, and then there's um, uh, well, and there's one other scene too where they're walking down a tunnel, and it's and there's the there's the other end of the tunnel where it's rotating. Yes, yeah. that was a but great they're, they're going shot. And you can tell that basically what they did was a, I mean, they had one half of the gimbal just steady. And but another rotating, and then all of a sudden they must have stopped it, and then they had the other half rotating because they those guys went in the rotating gimbal and yeah. end up going you know into in the, the other direction. The direction, yeah. and that was like, how did you? That was one of those careful like, timing. Yeah, careful mm -hmm. timing where where it just had to be like timed and figured out, and that's that's impressive technically too. The other thing, the other detail that he got right was walking in zero gravity when you have when you're trying to walk in zero gravity, but you're like, you have gravity shoes or something like that. Yeah. And the way people were walking differently, he didn't mm -hmm. do it quite as successfully on the moon itself. Right. But in right. the spaceships, there's an actual type of walk that they're doing, which I had never noticed up until this print. Mm -hmm. And I was like, they're walking differently. I mean, it used to be like they were holding on to stuff and whatever. And that's yeah. Know, in, in a normal print and a smaller print, it's fine. This I'm like, Oh, their their legs are shaking. They're, mm -hmm. they're they're off balance. They're trying to figure out where is down, mm -hmm. and that's that was a detail I'd never seen before. Yeah, one of the um, I can't remember where I heard this. It was but it, somebody who had spent time in space was talking about uh, being weightless, and they said it's it really screws with your sense of perspective because when you pull yourself through the ship. It feels like you're pulling the ship around you. You don't feel like you're moving. Oh. The ship is moving oh, in relationship sure. to you, and which is very interesting considering some of the shots, uh, like especially with the the big rotating gimbal for the uh, Discovery, where you've got the sense like Kirdalea is as he's running, he's moving the ship around him rather than he's moving around the ship. Yeah. Yeah. It interesting. And as if that weren't yeah. enough, the pellets were really good too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're, you're getting to uh, one of the interesting things that you see over and over again when people talk about uh, seminal films or era films or groundbreaking films is they all have this one thing in common. And, you know, people don't tend to put like 2001 and Star Wars in the same category, but you kind of have to. Yeah. Because A, compared to most of the genre films that preceded them, they took the subject matter seriously. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't a nudge and a wink, ha-ha, look what we're doing. And especially in Cooper's case, it was very much a, this is a serious movie that mm -hmm. we're making here. So they, they took the material seriously, but then spent a lot of time and care on the execution. Yeah. And... 2001 would we wouldn't be talking about it anymore if that care in the execution hadn't been there the same way nobody would be talking about Star Wars nobody would be talking about Chris Reeve's Superman nobody would be talking about a Titanic or the two Terminator movies it's it's that care and attention that lifts something out of that genre ghetto and mm -hmm. makes it makes it fly 
with a mainstream audience. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a testament to how meticulous this movie is in that it's nearly 50 years later and we're still just agog at the visuals they accomplished with zero CGI. It was a packed house. It, it was a packed house to it, it, was, mean, it, it was sold out. I overheard them say yeah. it was yeah. sold they out. They added a theater, they added a screening tomorrow night because they sold out Whoa, tonight. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, which is fantastic. Well, that makes sense because it is, it is. It's an experience. It's an experience. I mean, just an attentive, true technical achievement. Now, the thing I focus on, you know, I'm a, I'm a musician, I'm a film composer, I do a lot, a lot of post-production and stuff uh, in, in video and film work. And so my focus is, is usually on, you know, the sound. And Although if it's a, it's a good movie, you know, it's going to take me away, I'm not going to think about that thing. But I've seen this film so many times, I can, I can pick it apart. What the, this print did for me was realize holy crap, the amount of attention he puts on sound is yeah. amazing. Totally amazing. And, and, and people forget that, you know, a lot of filmmakers forget that sound is so important. It's the thing that sells a film, not the shot that you get, not the lighting. Mm-hmm. It's the sound that sells it. And uh, I was watching just the whole primitive, you know, the, the, you know with the, the primates and, and that whole scene. And you know what? The, the costumes haven't quite aged very well. They haven't. But what I realized is that, oh, my God, they're actually using real animal sounds for each call that happens. Mm-hmm. And there's an, and, and imagine that, that that was magnetic tape that they used. They weren't using, like, some sort of, like, digital file where it's oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna chop it down to two seconds, blah blah. No, that was actual magnetic file that they did on an animal sound and each time you saw you saw some actor in an ape suit go, ah it, boom, it that's lined up. Yeah. yeah. It lined up and and the amount of of, of animals that were and the amount of apes that were in there mm-hmm. each had a sound and I'm realizing, holy shit, yeah. keep track Right and yeah. the, and the print as large as it was, you got to see each mouth opening up, and there was a sound, and it lasted as long as the mouth was open, and it was done. I the wanted, sound editing, the sound editing is incredible. It's yes. amazing, and from there, and then going into the Stargate scene where you have all this 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 amazing music that Legetti, like you know you know that that Kubrick put in from Legetti, and but there's a rumbling that happens. Yeah, and. You're, it's it's subliminal, but it's happening, and it's probably one of the reasons that I talked about before. Legetti hated the way that Kubrick used his his music, but it was necessary because that whole rumbling when he's going through the Stargate is is the action of his journey through there. Mm-hmm. And when the when the rumbling disappears and his eyes focused on the room that's around him, you know his his destination, it tells you like how visceral that journey was mm-hmm. that's all sound it's just incredible and, and i think again the print was oh, yeah. just, just focused in on that. oh and, and yeah. knowing when to go into complete silence as well the you silence know like, is amazing like too, you know right? when it blows into the airlock you know it's all played silent and mm-hmm. it, it it's a and you only get that impact when you fill the other points with low rumbles or environmental sound and once you cut that out you notice the absence and it's, it's very striking. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing is the use of uh, day's breath in the helmet. Yes. As I, I found element. myself very cognizant of my own heartbeat in yeah. those moments. Like, yeah. Okay, remember to breathe. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're okay. <laughs> it's a very visceral experience. Yeah. It makes it very claustrophobic yeah. because that's the only thing there. Yeah, yeah, and, and you grab onto it. You can't help it. Right. So and, yeah. for, for as, like, quote, non-emotional as Kubrick is, it's a visceral experience, it's a very visceral experience. with this character. And then we get back into, into the music, which is, like, the emotional heart of the whole thing in a lot of ways. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but it's the template for why Star Wars needed to have a symphonic score is because of what Kubrick did over there. And in a sense, but in a much more di- diverse way, because he's mm-hmm. involved, like, you know, early 19th century waltzes and then brings in 20th century, you know, compositions that are just, they're, they're creating this, this sort of, uh, this tension between those two experiences between, mm-hmm. you know, you've got the, the Blue Danube and the whole space, you know, waltz thing and the beauty of technology, the, the, the streamlinedness of, of technology and then the visceral like 20th century you know, between which is bookended. It's it, that's the music you hear with the dawn of of, yeah. mm-hmm. of humankind, 
and going through Stargate. It's the same music, you know, when, especially when the monolith appears, it's kind of incredible. And, uh, and just the way, you know, I'm as a composer, you know, one of the things I hate the most is when the director goes like, okay, I have some of this temp music that's on this thing. And I want you to do exactly what that do is. It's like, well, then why did you even hire me to do the, why don't you just like get the rights to that film? And so temp music well, in source, which, music, which, which is yeah. how we get, you know, parts of star Wars being kind of ripped off of, Red Spring, and, well, and that's yeah. what, but that's that's yeah. a different thing. That's inspired by rather than you know. What, no, you know, well, I, I remember yeah, hearing uh, yeah. John Williams talk about yes. how some of the stuff in the Star Wars score happened. It's like, right. yeah, I couldn't get Red Spring out of my head because that was the temp track. I, I yeah. would have to make a slight a, a, a slight disagreement with you on there, in that I don't think this really influenced Star Wars necessarily well, in well, terms of its music because. That was essentially a swashbuckling movie, and Lucas very much True. wanted this '40s True. Eric Korngold, Max Steiner right. kind of thing. Well, yeah, and, yeah. and you get and that's and so that's John what Williams he for that, and right. so that's what he delivered. He basically right. rewrote half of uh, Howard Hansen's symphonies and right. uh, put a little dash of Hugo Alfin in there. Right. But, 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 when, but the when, thing when, is, is when he when he was cutting together Star Wars, he did put it together a temp track. There were temp based tracks, yes. on. Based on what Kubrick had done in 2001, because he was grabbing uh, actual, you know, regular classical music, you know, whatever he felt it's there to best keep, over the scene. It's, yeah, it's there to keep yeah. a, to keep you grounded within. Yeah. It's to keep the audience emotionally grounded because you have so many things that are so you know, everything from like uh, primitive, you know, uh, prime, prime, primeval and for uh, uh, primitive ancestors into this whole big, you know alien thing mm -hmm. you have to have some sort of center even though as even though if the center is even though the center is dissonant it still has something you have horns you have strings that are human or at least have some sort of sense of humanity to them mm -hmm. um i don't totally disagree with that but it's sort of like i think there's some there's a through line at the very least you know between the oh. two yeah. yeah for sure and if you I, I don't know how much he did of this on 2001 but if you've ever seen samples of the mix sheets or oh, when yeah. they were working on The Shining. Yeah. It wasn't just, I'm going to take these two minutes of Utrenia and I'm going to take these two minutes of The Awakening of Jacob and just slap them down there. Mm -hmm. He was manipulating the hell out yes. of those oh, tracks. Yeah. Oh, and that's what I wanted to get back to is that basically like I'm not a fan of temp tracks at all. And so, and, and so source material, yeah, whatever. But Kubrick is a master of it. And, yeah. and, and the way I know he's like mixing things together that, that in the original piece aren't next, aren't supposed to be next to each other. But, he does them so well, and so he's kind of the master of that source recording, of, of, of taking source material and putting it into a film and making it work. Other people have tried to do it, and they fail miserably because they're not as meticulous as he is. He's, and he's meticulous on so many different levels. Um, and if you've heard the Alex North score that was supposed to be part of the movie, you understand why he chose to go with the source material. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a bad you know, it's not a, it's not it's not a bad score, but it's not the big. It's not this. No, I think I think for yeah. listeners, one one thing that we're not really getting to that we should explain. Yeah. Uh, there was a score written for two thousand one. Right. Yes. Right. And Kubrick, the music that you hear in the movie, obviously, you know, they they did a lot of adjustments to to fit it to the movie better. But when he was cutting the film together, he was using this music as a temp score. And it was basically he reached a point where it was like, this is better than the score that I've had written for the film. Yeah. Um, and he so he opted to use what was essentially his temp score as the actual score to the film, um, which yeah. is. Yeah, which unusual. Yeah, which unfortunately uh, he didn't tell Alex North until the premiere. But you yeah, know, you know, yeah. that's that's Kubrick. Uh, being well, Stanley asshole. Kubrick was. I mean, was you know, we can be... we can talk a little bit about Stanley Kubrick's yeah, personality he was, as a director. He was kind of a dick. He was kind of. He was. <laughs> we'll say it. He was. He was, he was a lot of a dick. Now he was a pretty significant asshole. Yeah. yeah. Now yeah. we had we do have a disagreement about the use of the Blue Danube. No, I I I am not a fan of that piece of music. I'm just not. It's a it's a it's a trite melody. I'm not a fan, but I, at the same time, it does match that imagery. We did talk about yep. the yep. slowness of 
of the opening of the portals and as the as the ships are descending, it has a sense of a waltz to them. Now you you talked about Tchaikovsky's Oh yeah, I was, I was thinking Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, right? the waltz from Romeo and that Juliet. That would have been so <laughs> much better. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, Somebody we, we had do this that. this whole conversation in the car on the way over here. It's like there are so many other waltzes like Romeo and Juliet. Well, yes, 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 that one. Some Mozart pieces would have been yeah. perfect. Yeah, but, definitely. But that's one where. where but I'm thinking like, Tchaikovsky, really. Oh yeah, absolutely. Really. Totally. But at the same time, it's now iconic. The Blue Den. I was going to say it wouldn't. You know, it wouldn't have stuck with our culture the way that it has right. had it not been used in this film. Well, not necessarily. Uh, well, perhaps, but, perhaps the, the, a different waltz would have stuck. Well, yeah, but I mean, the yeah. Blue Danube would yeah. not have stuck the way that it has. There, there is yeah. some alternate universe where we're complaining about the walls from Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> the Blue Danube would have been so much better. <laughs> Why didn't he use Strauss? I mean, Strauss is right there. But you know, what's a, what's a really good sign is the opening part of also Sprach Zaratustra is... Nowadays, somewhat rendered cliche and yeah. silly by overexposure, and the, the the fact that it's now been shoehorned into parodies so many times. Yeah. But if but a, I think it's a fantastic piece of music, especially if you listen to it within the context of the whole tone poem. It's yes. very Beautiful. good and very emotive. Yeah. Um, but until you're sitting in that dark room with the big screen and. I would say that they must have had a magnetic, a mag stripe sound on this thing because it was clear. There were no pops and crackles or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you've seen it a billion times, that all washes away when you're seeing the earth appear from behind the moon mm-hmm. while the brass is building. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing it's missing, and it's just a, a limitation of the time, you really should be feeling the seats rumble when the lower pedals on the organ yeah, right. because that's the highlight of the piece. I know, I right? Know. But and it's but it's bookended again. It's it, he's uh, Kubrick is a master of bookending because he's got that at the very 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 beginning at the very end, very very end where the star where the star child is looking at the earth and mm-hmm. that piece comes back again. It's a, it's actually as you know as the the dawn of you know before the dawn of man. And then, and then, humankind being reassessed, you know, which is kind of the, the whole spectrum of the film. I mean, that's that's the thing I was thinking about about you know as they're going through the Stargate, and we're like, did we start with apes with this mm-hmm. whole thing, and now we're here? And well, it's so, about it's about the evolution of of the human race, right. you know, and and the the beginning of the film is the first step that step towards towards the the point that we reach with the, the the waltz and the and the the beauty of technology and and the the advancement of human as human civilization and then this idea that that we've reached uh, a point that we can't advance without additional assistance mm-hmm. it's and, a plateau yeah it's a yeah. plateau and the and the monoliths are there to kind of nudge us along to that next step mm-hmm. um you know i think Re- revisiting the concept of Kubrick as a cold, emotionless filmmaker, I think what I've always seen within Kubrick is what he does is he tries not to have the filmmaking assign any additional emotion to the experience. So mm-hmm. he has he, he sets up the situation as an observer and he he views film, I think, as a medium where we are observing the the subjects and so he is very careful to not assign any of his own emotion to the filmmaking and Mm -hmm. he he allows the story itself to have emotion it's not it's not that his stories have no emotion it's that that when he sets up his camera he doesn't want the camera to be making a judgment um which is i I think a tricky and, and it's really kind of an amazing experience to watch one of his films because so many, I mean, yeah, I love Steven Spielberg, but Steven Spielberg has a point of view, oh, and he God, yeah. he he does not keep it a secret, right? Kubrick has goes through a tremendous effort to hide his point of view. If he has a point of view, he doesn't want you to know. What he wants you to do is make up your own mind based on what he's presenting. 
Tim, we totally need to talk about AI at some point. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what you're talking about there is a, a natural progression from his background as a photojournalist. So, yeah. yes, that makes, mm-hmm. that makes sense. I would push back a little bit in that a lot of his stories are not about people. 2001 is not about people. Oh, no. David Bowman is just the guy who happens to be on the ship. Right. Uh, by the same token, in Clockwork Orange, Malcolm McDowell's character is just happens to be the guy who goes through aversion therapy and then gets the crap beat out of him. He's a he's a stand-in or a metaphor for the larger point that the story is trying to make. Mm-hmm. So, at least of the and even um, Doctor Strangelove definitely isn't a story about people. It's uh, just absurdism tweaked to the highest degree to put into our faces just how ridiculous the whole situation of the nuclear arms race is. I I think I rephrase it. I think it is definitely about people, but it's not about an assembly of persons, which is what most stories are. Yes, that's a better way of putting it. You don't have an assembly of individuals. It is more about human condition. It's more about... uh, But... But yeah. and I agree, but I mean, there's still emotion there when we yeah. talk about listening to Bowman's breathing and 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 the fact well, that yeah. there's emotion to that breathing when he's turning off Hal, and Hal is is giving you this emotionless speech, but still, do you get the emotion because of the way that Bowman's breathing changes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's rattled. He's totally rattled. He's rattled. Mm-hmm. He, he it's clear that he's like, I have to do this, and this is hard. Um, and so I, I think to call to call it emotionless, yeah, it it isn't I about say emotionless. Yeah. I think I would just say it's it's kind of cold because it is. You don't know anything about Bowman. You don't know where he's from. You don't know why he's on the mission. You don't know what his motivations are. Is he carrying on because it's a job, or is he there because my God, I want to go to Jupiter? Well, I think that the emotions are real, very real, but it's impersonal. Yes. Which yes. is a yes. different uh, thing. And in person, actually, that's a very good episode because even the shots are, are yeah. impersonal. I mean, there's yeah. that yeah. whole that whole uh, meeting where they're actually the, where um, I can't remember the name of the, the, the gentleman who is traveling to the moon. Well, it's when he gets Floyd. 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 But he meets the Russians yeah. who are right. trying to find out what's going on in Clavius. Right. You know, what's yeah. Well, and even in that shot, but more more so in the in the boardroom shot where he's explaining the whole what's what they found. It's everything's back there. Like there's yeah. all. It's like he's the the people who are presenting back here, and it's all this sort of like horizon. It's a shot at the horizon, and there's yeah. all, everything else is at a point. And it's basically the camera's far away, and it's looking at you know it does a couple mid mid shots, and but the close ups are meant for like later on in the movie. Everything else is basically most of the shots of people are are like all the uh, scenes are like at arm's length. Yes. Oh, very much so. Which is and, basically what we kind of get back. Yeah. To and, but. But part of it is, but part of that I think is also a symptom of you know he's shooting in a seventy millimeter format. He, mm-hmm. he was shooting in super Panavision with the idea of this is a roadshow movie. This is a movie you take touring in seventy millimeter. This is a spectacle film where he's working with the space mm-hmm. and and a large format like that allows you to do that. Right. And um, I mean, going back to Hateful Eight, I mean. Quentin Tarantino was kind of putting putting a spin on that by taking this enormous film format and putting it in a very enclosed space in a cabin in the winter. All right. But, you know, usually when you're using 70 millimeter, it's to exaggerate and display right. huge amounts of space. You're going to do the vistas. But, but, yeah. But you're going to do grand vistas. But the yeah. way that he uses it, as yeah. opposed to any other director that uses it, when, when another director uses that space, it's for, yeah, these grand vistas, but you still have, get the, you've got, you know, Sergio Leone's got a close-ups, like, all over the place. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? So there's, like... And Sergio, Sergio Leone, you see individual pores on the actor's faces. Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's basically, there's, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of emotion that gets thrown at you, and a lot of action that gets thrown at you in the screen. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Kubrick, there isn't. There's a lack of motion. There's a lack of. I don't want to say emotion from the camera itself, but there's there's a arm's length, as you say, mm-hmm. observ- observational viewpoint of 
what's taking place. And I think that's that's what makes him unique. And yeah. therefore, because he's got he's limited himself in terms of movement, you also see all the detail that's there. Mm-hmm. And he oh, yeah. places it's, so much. There's an expectation of patience within a yeah. Kubrick yeah. film as well. Yeah. Uh, he 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 takes his time. He oh, yeah. I, I I think we haven't really talked about the closing sequence, which is I think bonkers. It's it's bonkers and it's complicated, and yet again, watching it in seventy millimeter to me was transformative. It was it was yeah. fascinating mm-hmm. and amazing, and it Incredible. didn't feel too long and awful. Mm-hmm. You know, when I watched it on on a little TV screen, I'm like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah, you know, and when you watch it on the big screen, you're like, "Okay, I understand what he's doing. I get it. I can feel what what's going on. The sense of the sense of movement, the sense of time, the sense of distance." That, that he was like, I can't do this in one minute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we were talking about that a little bit the in, in the Stargate sequence because there there is that sense of, of motion toward, but there's also a, a sense of narrative. It's not, here's a number of abstracts we kind of jumbled together into a deck and threw them up into the air and see where they fell. Um, and this is where a lot of big special effects films get it wrong is there is a narrative that you follow from the very beginning of that sequence till the end when you see the pod in the room Mm -hmm. and there's a feeling of progression you're you're moving from state to state to state Mm -hmm. um i would say part of what got me about that last sequence is everything else up until that point for me at least feels like you're watching it after the fact. Mm-hmm. Like you are viewing all of these scenes have already happened. You are just watching. You're not in the moment. You're right. watching mm-hmm. it as it has already played out until you get to the Stargate. And then you are right there. Now it is happening. You are there with it and it's happening as you are, you know, you're experiencing it as he is. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was, it was quite a shift, quite a, quite a tonal shift in the, in the film. Mm-hmm. Well, that and, and on top of that, you've gone from what has been a very slow and deliberate and realistic attempt to depict spaceflight. Nobody moves around that ship in a hurry. Right. Nobody moves around outside of the ship in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Their movements are slow and deliberate and careful and considered. And you you go from this kind of very believable, hard-grounded science to all of a sudden, the then, whole universe just tipped over. Right, then you're in the tunnel in Willy Wonka. Is, mm-hmm. is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, exactly. that's happened. So but the tunny for, tunnel in Willy Wonka goes on for 15 minutes. Right. <laughs> so what did you think of, of when he actually lands in that room? What's your So I did not remember... Like hardly any of that. I, I've seen it. Certainly, it's 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 iconic. That room yeah. is iconic, but I honestly had relegated it to 2010 and assumed we would never get to that point. Um, so when we get there, I'm like, oh, holy shit! That's what this was leading to. <laughs> the room and and finally, you you end up really in Dave's shoes, um, watching all of that unfold and watching him watch himself. Very, very surreal. And I that was where I kind of like fell off. I'm like, okay, I was somehow with you for this whole thing. And now I'm, now I'm confused. Well, Thank but do you. you. No, do you notice every time Bowman sees himself, yes. that's the transition that's to an older state. Yes. And that keeps, ha- and apparently that was DeLay's idea, that every time he observes himself, that's the jump forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That was that was really cool, and that's what ties it all together, rather than just being this kind of I love, random thing. I love that what what catches him at the dinner table after he's shifted into that self is hearing the breathing. That's just yeah. like in his helmet, the labored breathing as he's laying on his deathbed, and then he turns and it's just like. <gasps> <laughs> so good it's, it's, a very, it's a very fourth it's, it's what Inception wanted to do at the end and I don't think quite got oh, it right oh you mean Interstellar or Interstellar excuse me yeah. Interstellar it didn't quite get right which is basically that sort of fourth dimensional sort of where time is all one thing yeah and, mm-hmm. and you see this and then this and then this but you know they're all all time is and it's in one space mm-hmm. and I think it gets that part right it's and I remember uh 
there's even like details of like, you know, I've read analysis where the breaking of the glass was supposed to be some representation of, of some Jewish tradition or whatever. <laughs> it's like, it's like mazel tov. Mazel tov. <laughs> yeah, basically, you know, and going into the next, le- next level of, of life or whatever. And, uh, but that whole transition and, you know, there's what's great about that whole sequence and then going into, you know, from the Stargate into that room and then becoming the star child. Mm-hmm. Is that there's nothing, there's nothing spoken. There's really no dialogue mm-hmm. that happens at all. It's like, and that's true of most of the movie. We get like, I think we're about 15, 20 minutes in the movie at the beginning before there's any actually. It's not a game movie dialogue. that is explained to you, which no. also makes it very, very different from most yes. science fiction films going up to that point. There's no narrator. Uh, there's no opening crawl. There's no, all right, turn on the retro rockets. We're about to land. It's like, no, you don't need to know that because you can see it. Kubrick has a, a unique yeah. understanding that film is a visual medium. And I, yeah. I really like the ways that we do get the backstory in the form of the, the news broadcast where they watch. And it, it took on seven, BBC 12, BBC 12, on IBM tablets. Yes, yes. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it took seven minutes for our words to reach. We have to take out this delay. Like, Ah, cool. Uh, but and just at least they explained why the delay wasn't there. That was yes, a nice that was nice. Otherwise, Neil deGrasse Tyson would still be giving them crap. About right, that. exactly. <laughs> but I, I liked that. That's how we. Okay, this is why we are here. This. I'm like, wait a second, Jupiter. But we were on the moon before. Why are we doing this? Oh, okay. There's a mission now. I now I understand from this news broadcast, mm-hmm. and um, then getting the the tie in to the situation from the moon from the earlier sequence in the form of the this was kept secret from you until you reached Jupiter space, getting the mission briefing. Like that was really cool. I liked that. That's how we were shown what the hell is happening. But it does keep that mystery up to that point, Yes, which they keep dancing around in the conversation that Howe has with Bowman yes. until Bowman suddenly says, Oh, you're doing your psychology reports, aren't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which was also, it, it, it was a good way of, delivering the exposition without having to have a talking head. Yeah. 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 Oh no, it's all, I, I think the film is masterfully put together. Uh, we have kind of reached a point we've been talking for a long time and it really is actually time for final thoughts. We need to kind of, kind of wrap Tim wants things up. to go to bed. We've got to wrap Tim, things up. Tim is up. tired. Tim is sleepy. But, uh, so, uh, we'll go around the room. If anybody has final thoughts to share about 2001 a space odyssey before we wrap Melissa. The model of the Discovery One was fifty-five feet long. Boom! Oh, <laughs> Scott. The follow the, up, follow up. That the name of the Legetti piece is actually called Atmosphere, and uh, was written in between. Uh, written in the fifties, and I don't remember exactly when. Um, but it was a piece that he did not necessarily license to Kubrick, but Kubrick used it anyway and paid him. So, but a masterful work nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Also, Lux Eterna. Yes. Is in there Lux also. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. um, I am not 100% convinced that the actual monolith that you see in the movie measures one by four by nine. But it <laughs> doesn't quite. It is supposed look right. to. It is supposed, it is supposed to. Be one to by four by nine. It, but it doesn't. Qu- it looks a little wider compared to the depth. Mm. Yeah. But mm. that's just my brain being picky. But I want to have a cell phone that measures one by four by nine. Just I can't remember what what was the reasoning behind the one by four by nine. It was one the, squared, two squared, three squared. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the squares. Right. It's the, the mathematical. That's right. Yeah, I knew. I knew once somebody tipped my memory towards that direction, I go. Oh, okay. it, it was something a math geek would have uh, one squared, two squared, would have approved. Red. Well. Okay, Allie, final um, thought. Uh, I think I'm going to go see it again tomorrow night. Ooh. <laughs> Better buy a ticket soon. Uh, all right? If, if they have any tickets left, I want to go see it again. I loved it that freaking much. Yeah. yeah, so my final thought, I didn't actually get to go uh, because I had a rehearsal for a show that I'm in. So I didn't get to see it. I'm very disappointed, and I can't go tomorrow night either. So that sucks. But uh, we are going to stick with Kubrick for our next uh, podcast. We are going to be watching The Shining. Are we posting this one first? I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't remember. If we we post this one first, then Scott has a thing to plug. 
Oh, but can you can you do the shining as a double feature with room two thirty seven just to remind yourself that some people have far too much time on their hands? Room two thirty seven. That's we already we already mentioned the shining as our next. We did. We said it was going to be the shining after Halloween, and then what is next? Do you remember what's after this? Well, after this is. Purple Rain. Purple Rain. Oh, that's God. right. We're doing Our next rain. movie is going to be Purple Rain. Just watch the sound. Just listen to the soundtrack. No, we're mo- going to get Matt Alex on. No, that. we're going to watch that's Purple gonna Rain. That's going to be awesome. It's yeah. Actually, be that would be perfect yeah. for Matt. So, yeah, do, do you want to join us for that one, too? No. No. no, no. <laughs> no. He, he respects and himself far too much I, for that. I watched it recently, <laughs> and once again, Every 20 years is enough for me. Well, we are totally going to watch Purple Rain. We're going to watch the shit out of Purple Rain. God damn it. God yeah. damn it. And uh, so we Just hope you... En- to the soundtrack. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this 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 two-episode visit with Stanley Kubrick. Uh, thanks to everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you. I hope uh, if you are listening, wherever you're listening to this podcast... Find yourself, a, if there's somebody showing a 70 millimeter version of 2001, you owe it to yourself to go see the movie because I don't think you can really experience it until you've seen it in 70 millimeter. Truth. Truth. And don't forget now that Stanley Kubrick did direct the moon landing hoax. He did. He was Stop such it. a stand-up <laughs> oh. He insisted on filming on location. <laughs> All right. And we're going to go away. Bye. 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 We hope you enjoyed our film fixation. We'll see you next time on A Real Education. Dee, dee.